for a while no no just like three episodes ago no i forgot not that long but consistently like over a period of like a few months i feel like we've been when i say we i mean i've been here i haven't disappeared (laughs) i never disappear because i have nowhere to go yeah yeah did you look at plane tickets last night i did look at plane tickets i didn't realize that it's the week after sin city ruby oh yeah I'm trying to talk Andrew to come to Memphis while you and Brooke are here, Chris. Oh, yeah. That'd be good. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> Ruby. Maybe. I'm thinking about it. Charter to private jet. Yeah. I just got to call my guy. <laughs> you, you joke, but like that would be one of your bougie things. <laughs> not a pri- No, no, not plane ticket. I got a guy. I got a plane guy. No. I mean, I looked at plane tickets the other day and I was like, well, that's no way, no shot, no way and how, but I'll think about it. It's a lot of traveling. We'll see. You're made to travel. Uh, I'm actually made to sit in my house. That's, I am a homebody. <laughs> okay. Before we dig into this whole episode, what does a day in the life of Andrew Mason look like? Oh, no. <laughs> what time do we wake up? I wake up at 4.45. Okay. What's the first thing you do? First thing I do is listen to NPR. And then we get out of bed. What's our next? What's our next step? First stop is the shower. Well, it depends on what the temperature is because I'll go on a walk first while it's still dark. Then I get in a shower. And then depending on the time, I may play a round of video games with my buddy. But then I start my day working. And then I tend to not take lunch breaks. And if I do, they're kind of short. I'm a snacker. And then I usually eat like before and after work. And then at the end of the day... I usually go on a walk right after work and then I will play video games or go do errands or go to basketball games or football games or something like that. And then I watch TV and go to sleep. I get in bed around 20 hundred. So eight o'clock my time. Oh, wow. You just really put the pedal to the metal there. Let's back up. Do you wash your hair every day? Because I know people who like to take I wash hair of their hair don't wash it every day. I don't know what that's like. I don't have hair. I mean, I've been told that by ex-girlfriends before that I shouldn't wash my hair every day, but I do, usually. Do you think that's why there are exes? Yes. That plus other reasons. I refuse to believe there are other reasons. Oh, well, I mean... What I'm TV kind of, do you watch at night? I have HBO, so I'm, I don't have Netflix or Hulu or any of that. So HBO and Apple TV. So, I mean, I watch a lot of South Park. South Park's probably my favorite show right now. Rick and Morty, I don't know, whatever's going on. There's been some Apple TV Plus shows that I've been watching recently that are pretty good, like The After Party with Tiffany Haddish. Really like that. that one. Have you watched For All Mankind? Not yet. That's the space shooting, yeah. right? I swear I watched it, it look dumb. No. Okay, well, I'll give it a try. No. Have you seen The Shrink Next Door? No, it's on my list. That is fantastic. You ever watching those HBO shows like The Sopranos? Not that one specifically, but yes. I am a huge Curb Your Enthusiasm enjoyer. I've been told I would like that, but... Oh my God, you would love it. It's your life, actually. Okay, well, then do I need to watch it? People who've watched the show will know what I'm talking about. I'm just not going to explain it. He can watch it and figure it out. The first few seasons are a little raunchy, just by the way. Okay, well... It's a different time. It's like in the 90s. Oh yeah, It's, it's like 100 years ago to you. I mean... I was either a baby or dead, so... Wait, 
Are you dead yes. before you're born? Yes. Because the opposite of alive. <laughs> I like these fundamental questions. Musical I've, I've plays, said, death, birth. Yeah, I've said that several times before. And every time I say it, people are like, dude, you're not dead when you're not alive. And I'm like, but what are you when you're not alive? <laughs> Is this a hill? No, no. Intended, you'll die on. No. Okay. Is this like a Boolean database column where it could be null and true or false? Yes. There's no default on this column. <laughs> Did you ever think that maybe we were just null? Yes. I have considered that often, that we're all living in a matrix. I want it to be true. So thanks for sharing your day with us. And what I took away from that is you have a lot of opportunity to travel. I'm so yes. excited that you're going to yes. Memphis. I have so much time to do so many things and I do nothing. It's amazing and I love it. I have lots of time too. I don't do anything. All right. Well, we have arguably more interesting things to talk about, though that was quite fascinating to me. Definitely more interesting. So today we are joined by Kevin Newton. Kevin, do you mind maybe before we just start talking all the things, Ruby, maybe just give a brief introduction? Sure. Yeah. My name is Kevin Newton. I currently work for Shopify. I am based out of Boston and I've been doing Ruby for, wow, coming up on about 10 years now. All right. Okay. We've been doing Ruby about the same time. It's cool. I feel like we came in a weird spot where the kind of hype was dying down. It was an interesting time. I feel like the 2008, 2009 crowd, which was a couple years before I started, was like one of the heydays with various implementations like JRuby, Rubinius. Lots of exciting things happening. MRuby getting forked, all those fun things. And then there was kind of a lull. I, we came in in the lull. Yeah. I, like I, feel, I feel like it came back though. It was, it was kind of interesting to like see the next wave hit right around like maybe like Rails 5, I feel like. Yeah. Because it, it was Rails 3 when I came in and I haven't heard Rubinius in years. That was a throwback. Ruby Enterprise Edition. Oh, yeah. I don't know if we talked about that. I used re at my last job. Re 187. <laughs> yeah, I feel like because it, it was around the time, I feel like the Rails 2 to 3 upgrade, the Ruby 18 to 19 upgrade, those killed some momentum. I mean, those were hard to get through. And so people lost a little faith and we've been recouping. I mean, it wasn't like a Python 2 to 3. I feel like I don't get as tripped up on the hash conversion stuff from like 187 to 19 today as I did as much like when I got started. Yeah. People are still up in arms about it. It's been like 10 years. Stabby Lambda is still very controversial. Wow. I guess I just don't roll in those circles, but I kind of want to. Yeah, don't. It's not worth your time. Yeah. I, <laughs> I feel like we've had enough drama the last few months. I could... The last I, few days even. Yeah. I just, you know, been a hell of a 24 hours. But <laughs> I, I got off work last night. Shannon's like, you seem uh, stressed. And I was like... Yeah, just some work stuff. Anyway, so yeah. let's talk about the fun parts of Ruby. You have a lot going on. Recently, before we started, learned you're on the Yajit team, which we can definitely circle back to. But I told you before, I have a very fascinating or very deep interest in formatters. Yes. It all started with me with Prettier. Yes. Uh, for JavaScript. I was like, this is amazing. I want this in Ruby. And we kind of have a couple of things floating around, but you are working on it. You got a grant or something like that. Am I right in that? Yeah. So let's back up. So about two and a half, maybe even three years ago. Oh my God, this is, this is a long time ago. 
I saw Prettier in the front end with JavaScript, CSS, HTML that Facebook had put out. And I was very interested in bringing this to Ruby. There wasn't a formatter on the market at the time besides RuboCop, which at the time was that they've made many improvements to RuboCop. But at the time, RuboCop would format it and it wasn't item potent. So you would run one cop, it would format something, you would run another, it would format it again, and you would keep getting errors. They fixed that since then, which is much better. But at the time, that was the experience. And so like, obviously not a great depth experience. And also, you know, just new cops would come out, everything would change and it was very frustrating. So I wanted Prettier to come to, to Ruby. Fortunately, they published a plugin system where you could do whatever you wanted to build in your own language. And there were a couple examples on the market. The biggest one at the time was the Python one, which has since been deprecated because Black took over as the formatter for Python. And I started working on the Ruby formatter as the plugin. And the way that it worked was a little hokey. But basically, I used Ripper to generate the syntax tree on the back end in a Ruby process. And then I returned it to the node process for Prettier and used JavaScript to format it, which was fun and kind of like a very big learning experience. But there's a lot of pieces moving in there because you kind of have to know, and I eventually converted it to TypeScript, and you have to know TypeScript slash this kind of weird intermediate transport layer that goes between a Ruby server and the node process and then run a Ruby server that is doing the, the syntax tree parsing. So like, there's a lot of pieces in there. And a couple of years later, I joined Shopify and I was like, hey, what would it take for Shopify to use this thing? They're like, not TypeScript. Don't be running like two different languages in order to do one thing. And I was like, oh, that's probably a fair criticism. So I wanted to rewrite it in Ruby. And around the time that I was having this interaction, Matt's went and said, hey, the future of Ruby, the immediate near-term future of Ruby is focusing on tooling. He said that at a couple conferences and I was like, oh, okay, maybe he's interested in this. And the Ruby Association every year puts out a call for proposals for a grant. They sponsor like four projects a year and you're assigned a mentor and you have certain deadlines for intermediate reports and final reports and deliverables and all these things. And in the past, we've done things like they sponsored Sam Williams to build async or the fiber scheduler. I'm not entirely clear on that. So don't quote me entirely on that, but he built a bunch of stuff into fibers and built a whole bunch of like assembly for specific projects to make it very quick. And I've also seen like there was a couple of MRuby projects and anyway, they were specifically making a call for developer tooling projects. And I submitted a proposal to basically rewrite the TypeScript portion of Prettier into Ruby itself and make a pure Ruby formatter. One already exists on the market. I hate to just like describe my entire project and then like not mention it because I think that's totally unfair. And that's called Rufo. And it's a great project and, you know, no slander here. They're doing great work there. You know, I had a somewhat different approach and, and I wanted to bring it. So yeah, I like to mention that only because like it's worth mentioning the other projects and the other people that are doing like good work in this space. Also, Penelope Fippen has written Ruby Fumped Ruby format, which is, you know, another project that uses Ripper and then serializes it to Rust and then uses Rust to do the formatting. So that's another one that's out there. Put links into your show notes and all that. <laughs> but yeah, so at the moment, the culmination of all this work is in the syntax tree gem, which is now out and it has a language server and you can use it and it's doing formatting in pure Ruby now. It's basically an extension of the Ripper's the Ripper standard library parser and the pretty print gem 
which is also a standard library. So it's all standard library stuff. And yeah, that was a very long-winded answer to your question, but that's where we're at. No, it's great. I think the first time you and I met was at RailsConf 2019. And I think you were working on Prettier then, the Prettier yeah. Ruby stuff. So for all the Prettier plugins, I guess they all have to do the similar kind of thing where they are TypeScript intermediary in the near language. Are there other people building plugins that don't need that? So the reason that you have to do it in your language is because you need a parser. But there are plenty of parsers that exist for other languages that are written in JavaScript. And so people use those instead. So for instance, the CSS, HTML, JavaScript, all of those. And actually, Prettier itself is written in JavaScript, not TypeScript. I actually added TypeScript to my project to, because I needed the help because the Ruby ASC is very convoluted. Yeah, there are other ones. Like I think the Java might not be Java. One of the main plugins, like the ecosystem plugins, is written in JavaScript because the parser is written in JavaScript. And actually, I built another prettier plugin that's getting a lot of use, which is the XML plugin, formerly XML and SVG. And that uses a JavaScript parser. So if there were a standalone parser library, and this is a whole nother tangent I could go on, if there were a standalone parser library that you could compile into basically a shared object file, then you wouldn't need Ruby. You could just run it from like the C++ V8 extension. I kind of would like to hear more about that. I, I would <laughs> like to know what tangent you would like to go on. Yeah, I'll tell you. So basically every day I get more and more convinced that we need a new parser for Ruby. More and more convinced. There are a couple of projects that are flourishing these days. JVRuby is still going, still doing great. They just released a whole bunch of new stuff and I think they just caught up with Ruby 3.0. Truffle Ruby still going. Sorbet, still going. So those three projects are all great projects deriving a lot of value for their users. And all of them have to maintain a parser that is compatible with upstream. And they have to maintain it by watching the change log and hoping they get it right. And that's a huge pain for them, right? I mean, like we're, we're using a parser generator called Bison that was written back in what, the 90s, 80s? And it's hard to read. It's just hard to read. You have to be very familiar with their syntax. You have to really understand what's going on. And in reality, there aren't that many people to contribute to the parser because it's confusing as all hell. So, you know, this is one of those things that's hard to maintain. The other really big part of it about the parser is error tolerance. And this is kind of a thing that's kind of flourished in the last couple of years, especially since the introduction of VS Code and the language server protocol, where... If you go into the most modern languages that are like really invested in developer happiness and productivity, the three I think of are Rust, Elm, and TypeScript. And you have things like click to jump to the definition. You have things like really nice formatting, even just like little things like you're in the middle of a comment block and you hit enter and it continues the comment block. Little things I'm talking about. All of that stems from an error-tolerant parser. Because most of the time when you're typing in your editor, you have a syntax error because you're in the middle of typing. So if you do one plus in the middle of a begin end, right now, the Ruby parser is just going to choke. It's just going to say, syntax error, you're done. As opposed to seeing that the end actually finishes out the begin block and just saying, okay, there's a syntax error in this node, but I can continue parsing the rest of the file. And being able to do error tolerance in that way and being able to do 
what's called incremental parsing by keeping around nodes in the tree so that you don't have to discard a whole bunch of things is the way to get towards faster development cycles. So if we create our own handwritten Ruby parser, not using a parser generator that is incredibly error tolerant, we can also build a binary format that Truffle Ruby, JRuby, and Sorbet can all use without having to hook into, they wouldn't have to have CRuby running. You could have this compiled within Scripten over to the browser. You could have it running in pretty much any context you wanted, and you could build it in such a way that you could parse Ruby using any language that you wanted to, not using just CRuby. So that's my long-term dream. So I have to ask real quick, this is a little bit of a side route, but was Prettier your first kind of introduction to parsers and things like that? How did you get so knowledgeable about all this? Trial and error. It's funny. I got a CS degree. I thought it was valuable. I thought that I had learned a lot. And I think that in some ways it's true, but I had never heard the term abstract syntax tree until I wanted to build the formatter. I think also, I'm going to get a little on my soapbox here, but I feel like the people that build compilers and build parsers benefit from a certain amount of job security because people are scared of the terms that they use. Whereas if we just like stopped using all the jargon, like abstract syntax tree and just said like structure of your code, I think people would be like less intimidated. I was incredibly intimidated when I started building the formatter because I was like, I don't know what the heck any of this stuff is, but Googling helps and spending three years on a project helps. You know, it's just one of those things like you just keep Googling and keep messing up until it works. So I certainly don't claim to be an expert in any of these things, but, you know, I've just been around it long enough that certain familiarity sets in eventually. So with Syntax Tree, you said it builds upon Ripper and Ripper being a something that builds an abstract Syntax Tree in Ruby, correct? Kind of, yeah. Ripper is a very confusing library. I wrote a blog post about it that everyone should go read. I will send you a link at some point. But it's a very weird library that hooks into the parser generator that CRV uses. And it functions as a streaming parser, which means every time it encounters a node in the syntax tree, it calls a method that you define. And then you do whatever you want. So you don't have to necessarily build up a, a, a syntax tree, but you can if you want to. And, and that's what I do in syntax tree. You can also use it to just look for patterns in your code or extract all of the comments or do any number of weird things. So yeah, Ripper is a very interesting library. And since its introduction in the 90s or like 2001 or something like that, when Yarv got merged, whenever that was, it actually still says Ripper is early alpha version. So take that for what it is. Wow. And is Ripper actually part of the core library or is it? Yeah. You can just require it. It's there. It's hidden. It's one of those things that's like, it's, oh, that's there? Why? I don't know. Interesting. With Ripper and the work you're doing with Syntax Tree and the grant, do you see Syntax Tree being something that gets adopted by Ruby Core one day? Or does this live as a standalone project? I certainly hope so. I'd really like it too. The project itself is actually kind of three parts. One part is the piece that hooks into Ripper to build the Syntax Tree. The second part is the syntax tree itself, which is kind of project agnostic. We need this in some way. It could be the parser gem. Like the parser gem defines its own AST for Ruby, and it could just be that. And in reality, one thing that syntax tree could do in the future is build the parser gems AST as well. It's kind of the same idea, but we need a well-defined AST. 
just to build tools. Like you need a well-defined thing to say, okay, this is a binary node. This is a tertiary node. This is a assignment node. And so I don't necessarily care if it's syntax tree itself, but I want plain Ruby objects that represent Ruby code. So yeah, I hope it gets adopted. I know there are a couple of initiatives going on in various places that are not yet public to use syntax tree as the basis of further tooling. So I I hope that it gets adopted as a thing. The other thing that I think could be really interesting with syntax tree is if you build things on top of syntax trees node structure, eventually we could swap out the parser that builds those nodes entirely. It doesn't have to be ripper. It could be anything like you can build those nodes manually, or we could build our own parser that then builds those nodes. And so as long as you're building on top of the node structure that exists in syntax tree, all of your tooling will continue to work provided we just switch out the parser. So yes, in answer to your question, I really hope it gets adopted. I hope people use it because I think it's going to be very useful. With Syntax Tree, do you have a specific Ruby version you target? Or because it's built on Ripper, can you just keep going back Ruby versions? It's one of those things where it uses whichever Ripper version you're currently using in your version of Ruby, which changes depending on the Ruby version. (laughs) So Ripper actually changes its structure between 2.5, 2.6, 2.7, And there is some stuff in there that changes depending on it. But yeah, it's a little wonky. I would say in reality, I think it only really supports 2.7 and above because there's various things that changes before that. Things like in Ruby 3.1, you have this thing where you can forward anonymous blocks where you can have just an ampersand. And that changes the way that the triple dot argument forwarding works. And so in Syntax Tree, I have it like, if you're less than this Ruby version, do this. Otherwise, do this other thing. And so, yeah, it's a little wonky. Official support should probably just say, just do, I don't know, 3.0 and above or 2.7 and above, something modern. Yeah, something still supported by the Ruby team. Yeah. If this thing does get shipped with Ruby eventually, if it ever does, then I would imagine that there would be different tags for this gem that would be used to support it. And it would be maintained the same way any of the other Ruby branches are. My other question about this, I have lots of questions. The formatting... Yeah. So the first question I want to ask about that, is it configurable or is it just kind of like a, right now, like an opinionated formatter? Yeah. At the moment, there's no configuration options. It's just, it is what it is. I am debating with some core team members at the moment of whether or not there need to be formatting options. I've been told that Matt's is of the opinion that the expressiveness and variability of Ruby syntax is a beautiful thing, which I agree with to a certain extent. And he doesn't want to impose a certain format and say like, this is the right way. My argument against that is that people expect things to be in a certain way. And by expecting things, we can actually speed up our recognition of various files. Like if you go into a a well-formatted model or controller file in a Rails app, you know immediately that it's a controller or a model because you see things in the exact same place. But if somebody gets hokey and starts moving stuff around in weird formatting, you're going to have to take extra cycles to recognize it. So that's kind of my argument. The other thing is, I think a consistent format helps beginners because they know what to expect. So yeah, not configurable at all at the moment, but we'll see if I end up caving. So you're saying I should stop writing all my public methods at the top of my model files and putting all my associations at the bottom? 
Well, the funny thing is that's like more of a design thing. <laughs> you can you can go ahead and do that. The formatter is not going to change that at all. So feel free, though. That would be a little weird. As your coworker, please don't do that. I got to delete a PR now. It's interesting because I think that's one of the reasons I like standard RB so much, which if I'm not mistaken, it's actually built on top of the RuboCop formatting. Yeah. But it's yep. that, hey, we've made some of these decisions because RuboCop on the other end is like configure whatever you want. Yeah. And I think that's why, like I know a lot of people who've adopted standard and it's just because it's one less thing you have to think about. And I think of tools like Go Format and even Elixir's formatter. Like I'm pretty sure... I don't know much about Elixir, so I don't know if it's configurable or not, but it's like, hey, this is a predefined formatter. You save it, does it, and you move on with your life. And I think there's like, this is, we were talking about like waves of popularity and stuff. At the time that RuboCop was written, it was around the time that like ESLint was around and a bunch of tooling was being created that was all highly configurable. A bunch of JS bundlers were also being created with a ton of configuration options. Like there was a movement within the ecosystem to have very configurable tools. And I don't blame RuboCup at all for that, especially because adding more options increases your desirability by other people to adopt it. It increases your adoption because if you have an option that like supports my like special snowflake use case, then I'm going to adopt it. But with all of those configuration options, obviously comes a lot of maintenance burden, a lot of like decision fatigue. So I think there was another wave later with, as you mentioned, Go Format, Elixir, and all those formatters that came out, they were all like, and then you see like ES builds with a lot fewer options than Webpack. And like all these things that are like moving away, like zero configuration, way too many things we're thinking about. So yeah, maybe this is well suited to the zeitgeist. I don't know. I was so sick. Like before Standard came out, I was so sick of having arguments about which cops to enable on right. like a project. And it's because like some people had these opinions and I was like, but we don't do it like this other places. And they're like, well, no, but because I'm starting this app, I'm going to do it like this. And I'm like, ah. So when Standard came out, it was perfect because all of those arguments went away. All of the maintaining the RuboCop config went away. And none of this to disparage RuboCop, obviously. But I like less decisions. Yeah, for sure. And I think RuboCop is a great tool with like, I mean, massive numbers of person hours going into it. I would like to strip out the formatting rules for RuboCop and just replace it with the formatter and then have everything live in harmony where RuboCop actually functions exclusively as a linter, not as a formatter as well. So yeah, we'll see what happens. Personally, my favorite linter is Reek. I don't know if you guys have used this before, but Reek is amazing. I feel like it's what I want RuboCop to be because every time I get a Reek violation, I'm like, oh, right, I should change this. Not like oh, I had get in front of my method name. Like, come on. So that brings up another question that I have. So as someone who uses VS Code, for example, and using standard, I guess because it runs on RuboCop, I do get linting telling me this rule is going to be violated. But for the most part, I can run like standard fix and it's going to format it for me. Like I have two questions. The first is, have you taken this and tried to like, put it to an IDE like a VS code. And my second question is, is it able to do any kind of linting in its current state? Yeah, so there is a VS code extension that you can install for Syntax Tree. And I made an organization for Syntax Tree and it's the only other repo in there. But it's a VS code extension that hooks in and it's got a language server running in the background. And right, you can hit save and everything just formats. So it does everything on demand. It has a couple of other interesting fun things in there like there's this idea in language server protocols called inlay hints, 
which is something that I added when I saw this guy built this uh, JavaScript plugin for ESLint rule that became a VS Code extension. And if you have something like one plus two times three, and you have no parentheses, and you don't think about math too often, you can sometimes be confused because there is an implicit parenthesis around the two times three because of the order of operations and operator presence. So he wrote a VS Code extension that adds the parentheses in, in kind of like a small font that says one plus parentheses two times three parentheses, which is incredibly helpful for beginners, for any number of users. I find it useful if I see a long math expression, you have more and more parentheses. So I built that into VS Code and it gets added in. If you're using the new 3.1 where you're omitting the hash value in a hash with the new 3.1 syntax, I just add that value in so you see it. And then for things like if there's like a bare rescue, it adds in standard error, like right next to the rescue, just tell you like, hey, this is what you're actually rescuing. So yeah, it like adds in those kinds of things. There's also some other baked in tools like you can click on a method and get the YARV disassembly, which is going to only be useful for a small subset of people, but you know, it's in there. And just like various other things that are in there just to make life a little bit easier. Eventually, I'd like to add in things like, hey, take this thing I just highlighted and make it into its own method and call it right here. Or like rename this local variable or any number of reformatting, reconstructing. So yeah, all that is to say there is a VS Code extension. You should use it. It's great. I've been using it for a long time and I like it a lot. I would happily pay for like reformatting tools. That is something I look at other languages where it's, Oh, make this a method. Oh, refactor this. And it's just like, yeah, I'll just do all this for you. It's fine. And I know there's a degree of difficulty with a language as expressive as ours, but that is really exciting to me. Well, I will say it's coming. We're going to have that. So yeah, hold on to your hats, I guess. (laughs) You just got a new user. The inline hints thing alone, I love that JavaScript because I don't know JavaScript. So whenever I see the inline hints, I'm like, okay, so this is being referenced here and then this is the type. This is the kind of thing where we can start to marry some of the existing tools out there as well. If we get the best of both worlds, if we're using Steep, if we're using Sorbet, you know, we can start to plug those things in and say, oh, we can like gradually enhance, right? We have like our base and we can just do a little bit of like type inference with uh, TypeProf. And then we can say, oh, you have seat types. Okay, let's add that in. Or we have sorbet, so let's add that in as well. So yeah, I think that there's an exciting future for tooling in the IDE for Ruby. Do you need webhooks in your application and wish your webhooks were as intuitive as Stripes? It's a lot more than just sending a JSON payload to your customer's URL. Hook Relay to the rescue. It handles both inbound and outbound webhooks for your application. It records what was sent or received so you and your customers can diagnose when things go wrong. Speaking of things going wrong, webhooks are automatically retried with exponential backoff so you're not overwhelming the receiving servers. No matter what happens, you'll have the peace of mind that your webhooks will be delivered. With Hook Relay, you get to save time while also having powerful, scalable webhook processing that the experts maintain for you. Go to hookrelay.dev to get started and check webhooks off your to-do list. All right, so you mentioned Sorbet. We've talked to a couple of other Shopifiers. I have not really delved into that world. Have you worked with Sorbet or even like RBS files? Yeah, I've worked with both. Sorbet a little more extensively. RBS has been a bit of a moving target. So I've delved into RBS at various points, which it feels like stepping into a river at very various points. But yeah, I'm definitely more familiar with Sorbet. 
what's your take on it? What are your thoughts and your experiences so far? Yeah. Ruby typing is hard to get right. It's my general feeling. I have in my head like a type system that I would love. And then I have a type system that makes sense. And I think RBS is the type system I would love. And Sorbet is the type system that makes sense. So RBS has a lot of different types. They have more than Sorbet does. You can have all kinds of nitty gritty stuff. The interface, the API for it is a little bit easier because they're not maintaining the compatibility of pure Ruby. Sorbet is two parts, right? Sorbet is the type checker and it's also the runtime library because you actually are putting Ruby code in your code to annotate your types. There's a sig block that goes before your method definitions. And that's real Ruby. Now it's not parsed as real Ruby, but it is real Ruby. So they have to maintain that compatibility. Everything that you're using in your type definitions is actual Ruby. RBS went a different way and defined an entire other language. There is a RBS parser. It's a different language. And they did that in order to, they can get away from having pure Ruby and they can have like a really nice, concise type system. Like they can use the bar character, just the pipe to use do unions, just like you wouldn't in other languages with types. So there's some niceties, right? There's this difference in type systems between a thing called a nominal type and a structural type. Whereas a nominal type is like the name of a class, like I have a user, as opposed to a structural type, which is like, I have something that responds to us. I have something that responds to name. And in my head, I only want Ruby to have structural types because that feels Ruby-ish to me to do duct typing where it's like, I expect this object to come into my thing and respond to whatever, to foo. And I'm going to call foo on it. And that should satisfy my type checker. RBS, you can do this. You can annotate an interface and you can also accomplish it in Sorbet. But the API for doing interfaces in Sorbet is much more verbose. It involves creating another module and actually including it into the class that you're trying to do. And like, you have to include it that way. There's no other way. And you are actually including something. You're, so you're imposing a penalty on yourself in runtime. So typing is hard to get right for Ruby. And it's not like it was baked in the beginning. So it's got a long way to go. That being said, if you write Ruby code like Stripe writes Ruby code, then you can develop a lot of benefits from using Sorbet at scale. I mean, Shopify's big monolith is like 97% typed. And yeah, and it's doing really well and we get a lot of benefits. We're doing a lot of things that like we turn off type checking in production so we don't incur that runtime penalty as much of the runtime penalty. And you can get a lot of types. It's like one of those things where it's like uh, the network effect of like a social media. As soon as you get like enough users, then it starts to get the benefit. The first 50% of typing your app is not going to help you. The second 50 is going to help dramatically. So it's hard to get right is the answer. <laughs> This is good. And the reason I ask your take on that, because I'm very naive when it comes to types. Like my only experience with types is Java and school. But like I always associate types with really good dev tooling. I always yeah. think, oh, because X language has types, they have really fantastic tooling. But then I hear you, you're building syntax tree and you're like, oh, we're going to be able to like do this refactoring stuff. We're building syntax trees and formatting. I'm starting to kind of disassociate that coupling of types and good developer tools. So that's why I kind of ask your take on that. I mean, that said, you're not wrong. A lot of the really good stuff comes from being able to have like type inference and knowing where everything is. 
Because like in Ruby, you could like click on a method definition and be like, eh, this could be any number of things. <laughs> this could be like six different methods. I don't really know. Bowler graph does that to me a lot. It'll be like, I'll click on a class. It's like, do you want to go to this class or do you want the, the class name? It's very yeah, confused. There's any number of things that it could be. And so actually Sorbet just released an open source VS Code extension that makes life a lot better when you're using Sorbet because they, because of their contracts and because of the way that Stripe writes Ruby in order to do their AOT compiling and all that stuff, it's like very clear which method is which method. So you can click through method definitions with the Sorbet LSP going. So that is a way you can go. This is great. All right. So YJIT, you're actually on the team at Shopify working on YJIT. Yes, that is the only thing I do. Yeah. This is the only thing you do. How long have you been with Shopify? About a year and a half. Did you join Shopify to work on YJIT or was that just kind of, it happened while you were there? I joined to work on the Ruby Rails team. I was not hired on the Ruby Rails team, but I knew in my heart of hearts, that's where I wanted to be. <laughs> and I worked on another team for a while. And actually that was where I got introduced to Sorbet. We were maintaining a, an internal service that was like Sorbetified and everything. And then Mike Lasio, the manager of the team, he posted something in a public channel that was like, hey, we're going to hire someone internally for the YJIT team. If you want, you can have an interview. And it was interesting because most of the time you don't interview in Shopify for transferring teams. But like since I was changing languages <laughs> to right. not be writing Ruby, to be writing C, they like needed to make sure I could write C. I was like, yeah, that's probably fair. <laughs> it's like a thing to do. So I interviewed with Maxime, the person who created YJIT and she's the lead. And I got the job and I've been working on YJIT ever since. YJIT's pretty exciting. I feel like in the last several years, we've gone from like not really talking about compilers and formatters and syntax trees, things on the regulars. And now we're like, we're hearing about all these things and we're excited about them. So yeah. what's your experience been like since you've joined that team? It's been great. I feel like this last year in my career, I've learned more than I did in pretty much all the previous years combined, except for maybe like my first year out where I literally knew nothing. And then I was like, oh, right, like programming. But this last year, I feel like it's been just wild. I had never joined a big company before. I had only done startups and I don't know why I didn't try a big company. Startups are great. I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot. But this last year, I get to pair with Aaron and I get to pair with Maxime and I get to pair with Alan Wu. And it's like, I learn a shit ton from these people. It's crazy. I mean, they're very knowledgeable folks. And just being in these Slack channels and watching some of these conversations, I'm like pinning things to my notes to be like, okay, Google this later. And like Google this later. And like, what the hell are they talking about? I don't know. I'll go figure it out. And just the number of like buzzwords that I've learned has been crazy. So yeah, I mean, it's like a very exciting project to work on. I really like my coworkers. They're just incredibly kind, patient people, especially to like deal with me as I answer, as I ask like millions of questions. But yeah, just to watch them and, and learn from them has been like, I feel very blessed to be on this team for sure. So I won't make you go into as much detail as Andrew. We can just talk about your work day, but what does your average work day look like being on the YJIT team? So the YG team is all remote, as most folks are at the moment. So Shopify is, is entirely remote, but just also YGIT is. We have a meeting on Mondays called YGIT Adventure Time. And we get together and talk about what we're currently working on, what's coming. There's five people on the YGIT team, maybe six, maybe seven. It's not clear. So I work on YGIT full-time. Noah Gibbs works on YGIT full-time. Maxime works on YGIT full-time. Aaron Patterson, Alan Wu... 
Eileen Yushtel and Gemma all work on YJIT part-time or like a lot of the time, sometime. It's not entirely clear. They have other projects that they're also working on. And Aaron does a lot of mentorship outside of YJIT. Eileen is working on a lot of Ruby stuff. She also just recently joined Shopify. Gemma is working on a project called Object Shapes, which is like a very exciting thing that you can check out from Chris Seaton's recent talk. So like they work on YJIT in some portion of their time that is kind of amorphous. So anyway, we meet on Mondays. We decide what we're going to work on. At the moment, the thing that we're working on is porting everything over to Rust. So that's been like my life for the last month, two months. And we get various tickets. We track everything in GitHub. We are working on a feature branch at the moment, which is like not my favorite, but like it kind of makes sense because we're going to upstream this thing in just one commit just to make it a little bit easier for the upstream maintainers to merge it. So this week I worked on tracking when you're compiling code with a dynamically typed language, you make certain assumptions about the state of the world. Like, hey, this method definition hasn't changed since the last time I compiled this code. And then because, you know, you can write monkey patch and do all kinds, you can like change method definitions. So if I make an assumption and I say, okay, I'm going to compile this code, but like this method can't change. And then that method changes. You have to go and invalidate your compiled code and, and just drop it and compile it again. So that's what I was working on this week. If you redefine a basic operator, what's in C Ruby, they're called BOPs, basic operators on like integer, string, any of those things, then you have to invalidate like a whole mess of code. I got that. And then method lookup where it's like a stable method lookup. I've looked up this method. It's going to be the same every time. So yeah, that's what we're working on. It's, it's a whole bunch of rust at the moment. That's like all that we're doing is rust. Yeah. I remember seeing maybe on the like Ruby core tracker, something about rust coming up. And yeah. it's kind of fun a few months later to like hero, like that's what you're working on. Yeah. Most yeah. importantly, are you using the Rust formatter? We're actually not. Oh no. <laughs> I know. I'm hopeful that once we get the transition of all the old C code into Rust, we can start to introduce things. But yeah, we're actually not. It's very hand-rolled. It's interesting. I would love to use it, but we'll get there. I'm going to ask a question that probably just sounds so dumb, but I'm going to go for it. So what are some of the benefits of porting from C to Rust? And what are some of the effects that might have running that in a production application or something like that? So first of all, that is not a dumb question at all. And it took us a month to agree on the answer. So that is actually a fundamental foundational question. So kudos to you. The thing is, Large C code bases are difficult to maintain. There's a couple of things that are hard. There's no module system. So a C function is a global function or it's static to an individual compilation unit, which is a file. So if you want to have modularity, like say we have a module in Rust now that tracks exit reasons, what reasons why you would leave compile code. We can just put that in its own module and it just lives there on its own encapsulated way. So that's one thing. Testability is another. It's a lot easier to write tests for Rust than it is for write tests for C. Type system, which is nice. Type systems help when you're writing JIT compilers, any kind of compilers. Rust has ancestry, has history in the ML family of languages, meta language, a language built to build languages. So Rust has that in its history, which helps. There's a certain amount of safety that you get in Rust that you don't get in C. Safety from undefined behavior. There are benefits to it. Now, the other side of things. If you're going to write an interface for C Ruby, 
then you have to write C code. That's the reality. So in order to interface with CRuby, we have to do all kinds of things where we generate, we use something called bindgen to generate C effectively like method prototypes or forward declarations in order to say, okay, we're going to implement this in Rust, but C, you know about it. And also Rust, these functions are implemented in C, but you know about it. And that like hand-waving weird littleness is definitely like the hardest part to maintain. And so that has been like probably the biggest pain point. In terms of actual usage, when you're actually running it, there's not going to be a massive difference. The thing is, we're hoping to compile the exact same assembly between C or Rust. So it really, the rewrite is a vehicle for our own usage. It's a vehicle to use for hopefully allowing more quick iterations on the widget development side. But in the actual production, it should probably not change anything at all. I feel like that makes it an easier selling point to like Ruby core. Hey, we're changing this fundamentally, but on the other side, not much is different. Yeah. The other thing is we were never going to support all of the different targets that CRuby supports. So CRuby, you can compile and run on just about friggin' anything. You could run it on a toaster. And we don't want to do that. We only support x86 at the moment and we're working on ARM support. So we're going to have a very small subset. It actually doesn't matter if this is written in Rust as much because Rust targets a subset of C, compilation targets, but we were never going to support all of them anyway. So this thing can be written in Rust and it doesn't interfere with CRuby's compatibility with all those various compilation targets. The safety in Rust is a thing that I've heard a lot about. I have a former coworker, a good friend of mine, really smart in Rust. And one of the things always touts is it's very safe. It will prevent me from doing things. And I feel like as a group developing a programming language that's used by a lot of people, you'd want that kind of safety. Yeah, it definitely makes sense as a tool to use. You know, just even, I mean, C is just one of those things that has a lot of caveats in everything. I just learned this the other day. Printf can fail if it can't hit the standard out. And so you can actually catch that error because printf returns an error code. No one handles that error. No one handles that error. That's wild. And this is why we reach for higher level abstractions. So just little things. It's just, there's so many ways to shoot yourself in the foot with C. So that being said, I love programming in C, to be honest. I actually think it's a phenomenal language and I love it. And I actually create new projects in C. But for a team working together, I get why Rust was chosen. That is a hot, spicy take right there. I like writing C. It's a good language and you should see all the stuff that's coming out. It's crazy. The new C stuff, they're effectively going to recreate C++. It's going to be terrible, but it's going to be okay. I feel like that was a roller coaster there at the end. Yeah, I don't know how (laughs) I I feel anymore. It's going to be terrible, but it's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. Can't wait to use it. Yeah. Yeah. This is awesome. I appreciate you taking on so many questions and I appreciate all the work you're doing. I'll give you some context. In 2016, 2017, when I started using Prettier, I was like, I'm going to build a formatter for Ruby. Okay, no, 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 no. (laughs) You will probably just hit leave Zoom as soon as I finish the story. So I fired up a text editor, not knowing anything about syntax trees. This was my first introduction to Ripper. But I'm like, oh, I guess you just like look through all the characters in the file and I don't know, move stuff around. And it was this horrible implementation. Then... My coworker, the one actually who knew about Rust was like, no, you want to use a syntax tree and you want to use Ripper. And like 10 minutes later, I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do anything. (laughs) So I very much appreciate the work that you do. 
I mean, you're not wrong. Like your intuition was just guiding you towards writing the parser as well. So, you know, you were on your way. I guess then cooler heads prevailed and yeah, you were just, just about to learn the design pattern the hard way. <laughs> yeah. You know, you were so close to writing a parser, bro. I was so close. I was just driving the formula yourself. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, I took an advanced data structures and algorithms class before I dropped out. And that might be the reason I dropped out of college. So understandable, not understandable the most thing. And they like to add random things like, words that don't make any sense my biggest pet peeve is tree that's spelled t-r-i-e why would you do that it's a data structure it's called a tree but it's not a tree not that tree but the other tree and it's like why are we doing this to ourselves this is terrible today i learned there are multiple types of trees adding that to my notes (laughs) well yeah there's oak trees and okay i walked into that one (laughs) you did how much do you hate me andrew i love you so much Uh I was going to ask you, like, what's some of the hardest stuff on YJIT coming up that has been just hard to do? Like, it feels like a, a tough project. We're all more Rubyist than lower level C or Rust developers. So I feel like there's a lot of unknowns to like imagining what goes into building something like that. It's interesting. So much of the like the flavor of the language is baked into this thing. I don't feel like you could ever use an off the shelf JIT compiler with Ruby because there's so many things that are very unique to Ruby. When I say Ruby, I mean C Ruby, and I'm talking specifically about Yarv. So Yarv is the virtual machine that Ruby uses under the hood. It has a whole bunch of instructions, like 200 something. And those instructions are very high level. So there is like opt plus, which is going to call plus on the operand two above the stack and one on the stack. And it's just going to put that back on the stack. And that's all well and good. But if the two elements are both integers, it's going to do a special thing. If they're both floats, it'll do a special thing. If they're both strings, it'll do a special thing. And then eventually it'll just call out to something called opt send without block, which is like kind of the generic version of like send a method. That function, which is like just send a method, there are actually 11 different kinds of methods in Ruby. And we have to handle as many as we possibly can. There are methods where the method is defined by a block, which could have external variables because it's a block. So it could have like a local variable above the block definition that is now part of the method definition. So they have slightly different characteristics. You have methods that are defined by an adder reader, and that requires a slightly different flow. You have methods that are defined with keyword arguments, methods that are defined with splats, and methods that are defined with blocks and not with blocks. So like, there's a lot of complexity that we kind of take for granted in Ruby. And so boiling that complexity down to like, no, what are we actually going to write out to the computer? It's hard. The other thing is tracking assumptions of like, this method definition didn't change. This basic operator didn't change. Like you forget how many assumptions you make in Ruby, but when you call like A plus B, what is A's class? Where is the plus method on A's class hierarchy? And then does B need to be converted? There's all kinds of different kinds of things that go into that flow. So I mean, if anything, YJ has taught me so much about Ruby, more so even than C and Rust, because it's like, wow, there is so much baked into these assumptions. So yeah, I suppose that's what's hard. (laughs) I think that's one of the things you kind of infer it. Like if you just know Ruby or Python or whatever, like you infer a few things about the hierarchy and what's happening behind the scenes. But like, it's all pretty much in your imagination of like, I think it's doing this. I can intuit that. But you like have to go in and concretely 
look at what is exactly it doing behind the scenes. And that's probably one of those things where like, yeah, we just call a method and we know like we overrode this one. So we can assume that it finds this one first, but like all the different types of argument passing and stuff is things we don't ever think about like that is going to be implemented differently there. So that's really cool. I think it's a, I don't know. It's just a really awesome type of programming, you know, like you can use Ruby, but like, to write code to actually interpret a language and stuff like that is a whole different ball game, which is awesome and like really exciting. I think in some ways I've like transitioned to a different field or a different yeah. field. I don't write web apps anymore. I don't write Ruby anymore. I write programming <laughs> languages, which is right. Really free. You well. don't write Ruby, but you are absolutely surrounded by Ruby, but you're not yeah. actually writing Ruby, which is hilarious. Yeah, I feel like it's a little bit like if I worked for Webster's Dictionary. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great analogy. Yeah, it's like just such a meta level on it that you're playing at. It's cool. Yeah, It's fun. I mean, honestly, I hope this episode and other talks that me and my coworkers do can help alleviate some of the anxiety that people might feel when they talk about compilers or anything like that, because there are terms that are super confusing, but they shouldn't be. Really, most of this is string manipulation most of everything boils down to and like copying files at the end of the day you can do this yourself if you wanted to it just requires a little bit of patience so i hope that this makes people feel better because i came into this knowing nothing and you can too (laughs) if you want to yeah i think that's a great thing to point out that like it's very daunting to look at as a whole and it's kind of like working on your car or something but like you can break it down and work on one piece and like understand it and then go find the next piece. And I think it's much more approachable. Do you have any recommendations on if someone wanted to start learning more about compilers or Ruby under the hood? I'm holding up a book right now called Crafting Interpreters by Robert Nystrom. This guy works at Google on Dart. And this came out pretty recently as a physical book, but it's been a blog series for a long time. And it's phenomenal as a way of getting involved. There's also writing an interpreter in Go, which is a book. There's also writing a compiler in Go. And then, yeah, all of those books are really good. Don't read the Dragon Book. Don't do it. Don't do it to yourself. The like canonical academic book of like how to write compilers that is like, if someone comes from an academic background, they're like, go read this book. It's like, don't do it to yourself. It hurts. Read one of the more modern ones that has like a much nicer interface that isn't going to make you learn like a whole bunch of compiler generators. My coworker took a few days off in the winter and just sat down. I think it was the compiler. It might have been the interpreter, but the one for Go, writing a compiler in Go. I was like, yeah. that sounds really fascinating. It sounds like a fun use of time. And it's incredibly well written and like very approachable. My team is actually doing a book club on crafting interpreters right now. And we're all like doing our own implementation. And like the nice thing about crafting interpreters is it includes all of the code you will need. Every line of code is in the book. So if you wanted to to do it yourself, you could, you know, get the feel for it. Yeah, that crafting interpreter book looked awesome when you were holding it up until you held it sideways and I saw how thick it was. And I was like, yeah, that's not as awesome. <laughs> it's a big font. <laughs> I hope it's like a few words per page. It's good stuff. Awesome. Kevin, thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun. Good stuff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining. Any links you want to plug where people can find you online? Yeah, I'm on GitHub and Twitter, both KDD Newton. So check those out. I write a 
bunch of blog posts on kddnewton.com. I'm currently working through a blog series on how syntax tree works under the hood. I am trying to make it a seven-part blog series. That's what I planned. I've written two, and I had meant to have five written by now, so it might take a bit, but we'll get there eventually. It would be as thick as that book. Yeah. <laughs> I get on tangents, and I get excited, and then I like lose track of time. So I feel Love like it. tangents are like the most interesting thing to me. When somebody's passionate about something, that's when I'm like, all right, let's go. I hope to finish that blog series soon. I think people might derive value from it, especially if you're interested in programming languages and you're interested in like parsers and the front end of various programming languages. So yeah, check it out. Awesome. The other thing I want to say before we go, you mentioned you're talking about it, your coworkers are talking about it, and you hope it makes compilers more approachable. I feel less intimidated than I did in 2017, just listening to you talk about it. And I think you did a great job explaining it. So I'm Great. I'm so happy to hear that because yeah, it's really fun stuff. Honestly, it's fun to work with and like other people should have this fun as well. All right. Well, we will tie our bow and do this again next week. So Kevin, thanks for joining. Chris, Andrew, we'll see you later. 